Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. God who is faithful. Lord, you're faithful to your word. You're faithful to your promises. God, you're faithful to hear our prayers. Uh, But Lord, we recognize that we can only come to you through the blood of Jesus. We can only come uh, to you with these requests because of what has been done for us in Christ. Because on our own, Lord, we are separated from you. Today, Lord, we recognize, just even in the scope of the request shared, how dependent we are on you, how dependent we are on your sovereignty and our need for your help in each situation of life that we face. God, we praise you for new life and the reminder of how you've knit each one in the mother's womb. You've known us before we were born, and we praise you for this healthy new life that we celebrate alongside the Flickinger family. God, we praise you for uh, these marriages and pray that they would root into you and a foundation that's rooted in Christ, that it would be solidified in that because anything else is transient and temporary. Lord, it, it is not lasting. Father, I pray for those who are just wrestling with health complications, Lord, for, um, for brother Don this morning. I pray that you would bring healing to his mind and to his body. Father, that you would help him just even to be aware and be able to recognize Beverly and to know what's going on. Father, that you would increase their faith in this time of trial and hardship. Father, for others who have struggled through various procedures, sickness, God, even just failing strength, I pray that uh, they would rest in your power and your strength today, knowing that you are sovereign, Lord, that you remain the same. You do not change. You do not age. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, today I pray that we would be motivated as your people to worship you, uh, not only in song, but in prayer, in fellowship with one another, as we open the word together, that you would be Uh, the object, the only object of our worship, because you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of all glory and honor. Father, teach us to be the church you've called us to be. Humble us. Direct our gaze back to you. Lead us by your Spirit in a direction that ultimately would accomplish that which you have called us to as your people. We pray this all through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, take your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Joshua. Book of Joshua, chapter 13. Joshua, chapter 13. That's where we're going to be at this morning. And... um, 
We are continuing our series through the book of Joshua, uh, entitled God is Bigger, as we uh, navigate each uh, piece of this narrative. And uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we want to encourage you to grab one of the Pew Bibles, too. Um, and you have a digital copy as well. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 222, is where Joshua 13 is going to be. Uh, so you can find that easily. And we want to make sure we have our eyes on God's Word, first and foremost. Uh, this is actually one of those passages of Scripture that many of us don't really take the time to read or study much. And uh, I'm going to ask you to be honest here for a second, okay? Uh, how many of you are guilty of skimming over portions of Scripture because they just don't seem applicable or interesting? Come on, be honest, all right? That's, I, I'm with you 100%, okay? You're not alone in this. And I would say this is a tendency that we have and why it's so important that we actually teach through scripture. And one of the things here that we strive to do is strike a healthy balance between opening up a book of scripture and just walking through it and uh, spending time intentionally focused on uh, current issues like family or a joy or what, whatever that may be. And the reason is because when we walk through a book of the Bible, it forces us to actually take into consideration what is the significance of this portion of God's Word. And how can that be beneficial to our life and growth as the church that God has called us to be? Now, I want to illustrate this a little bit just to highlight the importance of a section like this before we dive completely into it. And so this morning, actually, I had text my mom because my mom is just really gifted in uh, kind of saving or uh, uh, keeping around those things that have intentional value that other people might end up just discarding. And so I actually I don't know there I don't know if there's a piece of furniture in my parents house that doesn't have some lasting impact or sentiment that goes back generations. It's it's kind of a cool aspect of a. Uh, just how my mom has arranged their home. And so I knew she would be a person who would have something to bring. And I said, make sure it's uh, portable. I didn't want her to try to load up a chair and bring a chair up here. Um, but she brought me these two vases. And uh, she told me, she said that there's, she has about eight of these. And if you were just going through their home and cleaning stuff out, you, you found these, you might be tempted to just be like, ah, oh, these really have no significance to me. I'm going to end up throwing these jars of dried up flowers out uh, because, uh, you know, I might keep the jars, but the contents have no meaning to me, right? Well, she explained to me that every time my dad has bought her flowers, she dries them out and puts them in a jar. So there is great sentimental value with these. And, and this value... Uh, without that story, without that context, we would have no merit to really pull from this, right? Um, but when we understand the value of something like this to the person possessing it, it changes our perspective, doesn't it? Changes the complete perspective. Then we go, oh man, that's so special, that's neat. And may even give you ideas, right? So... I want you to think about that in the context of 
Joshua 13 through 19. We may read through this section of Joshua highlighting and detailing how the inheritance of the land, the promised land, was divvied out amongst all these different nations, and we step away going, I have no idea how this is of any merit or value to me. But I want you to stop and think for a moment about what has brought the nation of Israel to this point. To put yourself in their shoes and think about this section of Joshua from their perspective. If we're to go back all the way in time to Genesis 12, where God made this covenantal promise to a man named Abraham, he said, I'm going to build a nation through your people, Abraham. And not only that, but just prior to this, in Genesis chapter 11, Abraham has just stepped foot into the land of Canaan. And God says, this land where you're at right now, will be given to this nation I will build through your people. It was the Abrahamic covenant, this promise that God made with him. Well, Abraham was about 75 years old at this point. And if we fast forward to the significance of this, Joshua has just led the nation of Israel into the promised land. Think about the span of time that's taken place from that. Now, we could debate for a while about exactly how many years it is, and it really is of no value. But to give you a broad perspective here, one of the things we do know from the texts of Scripture is that Israel was in Egyptian captivity for right around 400 years. Now, we know that Abraham was not a part of the picture when they stepped into Egyptian captivity. So what happened before that? Well, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Jacob was renamed Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was named Joseph, and Joseph ended up being sold into slavery by his brothers, he was ended up working in Potiphar's house, ended up in prison for years, then ended up in governmental rule, helping the Egyptian people right before a great famine took place. The famine takes place. And what happens? All of his brothers, all of Joseph's brothers, along with their father, came to Egypt. This is how they ended up in Egypt. Well, Joseph dies, the Pharaoh at the time dies, a new Pharaoh is appointed, that Pharaoh doesn't really like how big Israel has gotten, and so he enslaves them for 400 years. And then God raises up this man named Moses. And Moses steps in, and through the book of Exodus, we see the exit of the nation of Israel out of Egypt and on their journey to the promised land, the very land that was promised to Abraham back in Genesis. But they get there the first time of what happens. They disobey the Lord. They do their own thing. They say, no, we're, we won't be successful. We're not going to depend on the Lord. So they wander in the desert for another 40 years before they actually cross over into the promised land. Now, just in that scope of narrative, walking from Genesis all the way to Joshua, we've covered pretty close to about 500 years. I want you to put that into the scope of your brain and consider that 
The United States of America is not even 300 years old. And this fulfillment of the promise of the Lord after all these years is finally coming to fruition. Wow. And when we think about it in that perspective, all of a sudden, the pages of Joshua 13 through 19 gain so much more significance when we look at it from the perspective of a nation that had longed for the fulfillment of this very thing. And it's detailed right here. This is why, church, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, all Scripture, everyone say all, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That includes Joshua 13 through 19. Now, in the scope of this, we could take several different routes as we navigate this. We could look specifically at the characters of Joshua and Caleb and detail their lives and their faithfulness and their reward as a result of their faithfulness. We could step back and do some historical evaluation of uh, how the different tribes came to be and uh, what, why they inherited the land they did. And I could put up maps and show you and you get the visual picture of how that all came to fruition. We could do a study on the promises of the Lord and focus just on what did God promise and how did that come to be. All of that is here in Joshua 13 through 19. This morning, what I want us to do is I want us to just step back and take a broad view of this. Okay, so we're not going to go through every single verse of chapters 13 through 19. And some of you are going, oh, thank heavens. But we are going to cover a broad view of this, looking at one specific aspect that is visible through the whole. And so if you walk away with nothing else, church, I want you to grab hold of this truth and, hey, if you want to walk away with this and tune, tune me out the rest of the morning, as long as you walk away from this, I will be satisfied. Okay? But don't do that. Here's what it is. In all things, God is faithful. That's it. In all things, God is faithful. If you walk away with nothing else but that truth and clinging to that truth and yearning for that truth today, that's, that's the motive. And we're going to see why that is the overarching theme we're going to focus on in these, in these passages. I want to start, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 13. And then after that, we're going to piece it out a little bit more as we look at the rest of this and highlight some repetitive themes that draw out more of what we can see regarding God's character Starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says this. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And I just picture Joshua going, Thanks, Lord. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from the Shire, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Merah that belongs to the Sidonians to Aphek. 
to the boundary of the Amorites and the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Valgad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath and all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mishrafoth Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, specifically, who is speaking here? Who is it? In verses one through six, who's talking? God is. Everyone say God is. Okay. God is regurgitating this to Joshua. He's identifying all of this that is yet to come. And we see that because at the end of, or at the last part of verse one, he says, you are old and advanced in years and there remains yet very much land to possess. And he goes on to list the land. And then in verse six, he says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Now, Joshua here had been a faithful leader. Reading from chapters 1 all the way through chapters 12, Joshua had been faithful. He'd been faithful to follow the Lord's commands, even in the face of unbelievably challenging battles. Joshua had been faithful to do what the Lord had asked. Not without fault. We saw that last week when they failed to Seek the Lord's counsel with Gibeon, right? But time and time again, Joshua had done what the Lord had asked him to do, according to the word of the Lord. Yet it's interesting here that even in all Joshua's faithfulness and all his years of faithfulness, the task was not yet complete. And yet God gives Joshua a very specific instruction, not about conquering the rest of the land. God says, I will do that. I will drive this people out myself. But right now, Joshua, you are to divide up the land as an inheritance for the people. And as I think and reflect upon that, I have to wonder if Joshua, as he sat back in his old age and looked, was encouraged and yet a little discouraged that all of the land had not yet been conquered. Because that was the vision, right? That was the picture painted. And yet, there's a truth in this that we could easily miss. When God says, I will finish this work through my people. And that is the truth that this nation's power, The nation of Israel's power and authority did not exist in the one man Joshua, but in the eternally existing God of the world. That is, God would be faithful to complete that which he started in Joshua. God would bring to completion whether Joshua was around or not. Now, there's a couple where the rubber meets the road principles that we can draw from this. One is that leaders grow old, pass away, fail, 
let us down, but God never will. God will never fail. And he is faithful in all things. Everyone say all. All things. Secondly, you can be, get this church, you can be the most faithful person to your calling and still not see it brought to completion. Remain faithful and trust in the Lord. You can seek to do everything right to your best ability and still not see what you desire to see. Whether that's in your kids or in the culture or in your job, in the church, because God has not called you to bring about completion in what He has begun. He has called you to be faithful. Why? Because God is the one who's faithful in all things and He will, everyone say will, He will bring about exactly what He's intended to. Remain faithful and trust in the Lord. Now another aspect that we see throughout these chapters in Joshua is God's faithfulness and man's temptation to, I'll say, laziness. And so what I want to do is I'm going to pull out and and kind of we're going to read several specific verses through several chapters here. And I want you to look for the pattern in each one of these. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. says, yet the people of Israel did not, everyone say not, they did not drive out the Geshurites, the Machthites, but Geshur and Machab dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Now fast forward a little more to chapter 15, verse 63. Chapter 15, verse 63. says, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now look at chapter 16, verse 10. It says, however, they did not, everyone say not, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And then look at chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. It says, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now... When the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. See the pattern? There's something significant in these chapters of Joshua for over and over and over again it to be recorded that they did not drive the people out of the land. They could have easily just said, oh, you know what? This grouping, this clan of people dwells with Israel and left it at that. 
There is significance here as to why it is important that they did not drive these people from the land. Okay? Everyone say, why? I'm glad you asked. Let's look. Okay? I'm going to flip back, and you can just take note of this if you would like, but I want to, I'm going to flip back to the book of Exodus. Exodus, and I'm going to read two passages of Scripture from Exodus. The first one is Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verses 31 through 33. Exodus 23. And understand, as we talked before, this is a long time before the Israelites were actually in the promised land. Verse 31, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest you make lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Alright, now, I'm gonna flip over to chapter 34, verses 11 through 16, because this was not the only time that God made this clear. Exodus 34, 11 through 16. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god." Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they have, when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Now this is one of those passages of scripture that should make you go, whoa, okay. The word of the Lord is really direct. And yes, that is the point. Because it is very clear why the Lord has commanded his people to do according to what he has said. If you do not obey the command of the Lord, God warns them, this will become a snare to you. And if you continue reading in the Old Testament, you find out that's exactly what happens. Here's the broader implications of this church. You can have a broad view of God's faithfulness and still fail to remain faithful in the small things of life. Israel had every reason to brag about, look what has been accomplished so far. Look at all the land we have conquered. And Right away, we should note that there shouldn't be the language used, right? But rather, look at what the Lord has done. And yet, there's a big deal that's left undealt with in the sense that the people of the Lord failed to carry out exactly what God had intended to be carried out. 
And it might have seemed small in the moment, but it became a big issue. Church, we do the same thing. And what I mean by that is we can see the broad faithfulness of God in what Christ has done. Most of you here today could articulate and say, yeah, I believe, I, I believe that what Scripture identifies as true, that Jesus came and died, He rose again, that He's coming again. I believe all of this to be true. And yet, is that actually revealed in the small aspects of our day-to-day life? Or are we content with the broad view? Look at what the Lord has done. And yet, the model of seeing Seeing what the Lord has accomplished in the broad spectrum of things is visualized when the church takes that into the small aspects of life and exercises faithfulness in it. And I'm going to tell you right now, what the Lord has commanded us to be and to do is commanded for a reason. In the same way that he commanded the nation of Israel, when you get to this place, you shall drive out the people from the land, lest you fall into temptation from their idolatry. And the Lord functions the same way today. You ever wonder what the commands of the Lord for your life are today? It is right here. My goodness, there's so much of this in our class this morning on care ministry. We read just one section of Romans 12 and we sat there and I'm, I'm just went, you want to challenge, you just read that section of scripture and then read it every day and look at what you're not doing. But we have to remain faithful in the small things. Lastly, today, I want to just highlight a couple of repeated statements in chapters 18 and 19. I want you to look for the repetitive statement here. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 18. It says, And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord. Verse 8. So the men arose and went, to, went and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return it to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. Verse 9, chapter 18. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it. By towns in seven divisions, when they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. Now go to the end of chapter 19, all the way over, verse 51. And at the end of chapter 19, this is actually where Joshua is receiving his inheritance And in verse 51, it says, these are the inheritances, the Eleazar, the priest and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers, houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. See the common theme before the Lord, they took these matters. 
It was before the Lord that the inheritances were actually solidified. Even when they scouted it out and brought back descriptions, it was before the Lord that this happened. Why? Because God is the Lord over the inheritance. God was the one who promised this inheritance. God is the one who sees it to completion. He is Lord over the inheritance. One specific group of people, that in their inheritance looked different. And this is something I challenge you to study, look into. It's the Levites. We could spend a whole day just talking about the significance of the Levites and their historical, how they came to be where they are today. But in back in chapter 18, verse 7, it says that the Levites have no portion among you. For the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. To summarize this simply, for the Levites, they didn't inherit any specific piece of land in the promised land. Rather, the Lord was to be their inheritance and all that was the Lord's. And every time I read that, I think to myself, should this not be what we strive for in all things, church? That the greatest inheritance of all is the one that is not of this world. How do we apply these things? We talked about God's sovereignty, His faithfulness in, through Joshua, but His faithfulness to complete that which was started. We talk about the faithfulness of God and yet the unfaithfulness of man to complete even the small things. We recognize God as Lord over the inheritance in all things. God is faithful. So I want to ask you a question. Is your faith rooted in a God who is faithful? Now some of you may be eager to say, yeah, my faith is rooted in the God of the Bible, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. But does your faithfulness in life reveal that to be true? Or are you serving another God? I want to ask you a series of questions that can help you diagnose this and just take a look internally at where you sit in these ways. On a given week, are we more concerned with God's mission or our own? On a given week, are we more focused on bringing glory to God or ourselves? On a given week, are we more consumed by what we have accomplished or what God has finished? On a given week, do we think more about our earthly inheritance or our eternal one? I'll be honest, church, as I wrote these questions out this week, I was deeply convicted. Because I am way more prone to put myself as God of my life than I am the God of creation.
the God of the universe. And I'm with you when you say, Matt, I've got this to-do list. I've got these burdens. I've got a family. I've got a job. I've got bills to pay. And I'm not saying we become less faithful in the day-to-day. But what I am saying is at the end of our lifetime, what becomes most important? And I'm going to tell you, if you leave your job tomorrow, next week someone else is going to be there to fill your role. I'm going to tell you, parents, your kids are going to grow up and they're going to leave the house and they're going to make choices on their own. I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a day that comes when you're no longer here in the midst of the church body. And yet, Lord willing, the ministry continues as it has for almost a hundred years. So what is the common denominator? It's the faithfulness of God. In all things, God is faithful. And He's called us to a faithfulness that is rooted in Him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and uh, I want to read as we prepare to close. <clears throat> I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because this is where our hope lies. And you may be asking, what is this inheritance that's not of this world? What do we even consider that and how, how do I how do I attain that how do I become settled in this place where I recognize that it's not what I do in this world for this world that is of eternal value but it's what I do with the motivation that is rooted in who God is and what he has called me to first Peter chapter 1 I'm going to read verses 3 through 7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is one of those texts, church, that when we read it, it should cause us to go, oh my goodness. The greatest inheritance I could ever receive is one that comes through Jesus Christ. And when I choose to surrender to Jesus... It's a choice that I'm making to say, I know everything here will pass away. 
but my inheritance in Christ is secure. Why? Because God has promised it to be so. And in all things, God is faithful. Amen? So today, I want you to wrestle with where your faith is rooted. Is it rooted in the God who has proven through history that He will always be faithful in all things? Or are you grappling for a faith in something that is transient and temporary? Church, may we be devoted to glorifying the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, not just in word, but in everything we do to be faithful as he has called us to be faithful. Amen? Father, may you be glorified in these things. May you build in us a desire to be faithful. Not just in the big scope of things and saying, I, I, I believe, but God, in how we live and how we shepherd our homes and how we care for one another and how we proclaim this hope and this goodness to the community around us, God. And how we get back up after we've stumbled. God, may every piece of our life, the grief, the pain, the loss, the sorrow, the joys, the victories... Be a reminder of our ever-needing presence of you in our lives. God, thank you that you are faithful, even when we lack faith. Thank you that you have given us a hope in Jesus that cannot be taken away. Motivate us by these truths to go from here and glorify you above all else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.